As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. We have important announcements here right off the top. We have a brand new sponsor here on the show, Fresh Sleep. Fresh Sleep is the premier daily mattress in a box service. It takes all the hassle and guesswork out of your nightly mattress with pre-measured components that can be tailored to your preferences and delivered right to your door. Featuring soporific recipes, the whole family will be comatose for. Just open the box and watch your meal expand by itself like magic. I personally recommend the queen-sized queso fondito with fitted sheets. Fresh Sleep, we sponsor everything. I'll take six. Good. Also, an important thing to note, I've been remiss, Walker, in advertising the upcoming Arkhipov Day. On October 27th, we have Arkhipov Day. If you don't know anything about it, just wait for the news segment where I will elaborate. Very nice. So this is a board game podcast. We talk about board games. First, we're going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we are going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Then we are going to talk about our feature game, which is Korra. Rise of an Empire. Welcome to Navir... Oh, wait, no, that's something else. I scared myself there. <laughs> so what'd you play this week, Walker? Mark, it's been two weeks. It has. I have such a huge list. So let's get going. First off, we did some streams. We did two streams while we've been away. Two Saturdays have passed. The first Saturday was Tidal Blades. Not to go into it. This was designed by Tim Elsner and Ben Elsner, put out by Skybound Games. It is an experience. It is a, a, a fleshed out world, a color palette that's very pleasing. The gameplay is very present, substandard, and pleasant. There we go. <laughs> you, you're 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 rolling dice, and you and you're and you're upgrading, and everything else is based around these dice. It is either helping you mitigate. You know, losing the dice or making the dice better or, you know, helping you get victory points with these dice. So if you enjoy rolling dice, check out Tidal Blades. And then just this Saturday, we played Alien, Fate of the Nostromo. This is designed by Scott Rogers and put out by Ravensburger. This is a cooperative game where it's based off the first movie and it's pretty much here's a bunch of missions and here's a timer that you have to 
you know, that, so you have to get these missions done fast, right? And then as soon as you've done these uh, missions, which are player uh, N plus one, then you get the big final mission, right? So the timer is really just, you know, the aliens could bump into you every so often and, you know, your timer's going to click down. And if you get to zero, you lose. And then one of the final missions could be self-destruct. And if it self-destructs, you lose there. Overall, you've played it once. We've talked about it before. It is quite a pleasant game. It's not overly difficult. It's, you can explain it to your family very easily, you know, because all the actions make sense. It's like, you're going to trade items. You're going to pick up items. You're going to move. That's all you need to know. Overall, I don't mind owning Alien Fate of Nostromo. I'm going to keep it around just for those exact times, you know, when you need a nice, friendly, easy, accessible, cooperative game. Definitely those are words that come to mind when I think of the movie. Friendly, easy, accessible. Absolutely. And I heard a very interesting story. There's the character that I played. It is... The, the young lady that when the first chest burster comes out, she's the one that freaks out the most. And apparently the, the, the reaction of her is so grand because they didn't actually tell her on set what was going to happen. So she's like staying there reacting to this poor guy on the table. And then this crazy thing erupts from his chest and you know, her reaction is 100% genuine apparently. So I'm going to have to look into that because that sounds amazing. I think I heard that story as well with respect to them not telling the actress as to what was going to happen, yes. So I got to play more for science. For science is by a friend of mine, our Eric Royce, put up by Gray Fox. Uh, sadly, Walker decided not to back it on Kickstarter, and that's why he doesn't have a copy. I'm going to keep telling that joke, Walker, until it doesn't trigger you so badly. This is the nature of our relationship. It's such a weird Kickstarter. And because Tinner's Trail did the same thing. These are the first two Kickstarters that I've ever been part of, and I've been part of a couple. One or two. I th- let me count one second. Okay, uh, like 50, that do they, is it just a guy, a uh, person <laughs> that says, I, I, I think I'm going, just a moment, I'm, I'm going to go ship out something, I'll be right back. And, you know, he goes and sends a package that day, and then maybe another day he'll send out another package. Like, this is so weird. The problem that I have with this person, let's call this person Sam at the warehouse, isn't so much Sam's pacing, it's that Sam obviously is lying to Gray Fox on the regular Either that or Gray Fox is just making stuff up because for months we got these updates every couple of weeks. Oh, it, we it, it's at this place. No, it's not at this place. Oh, it's finally at... No, it's not... Ha- oh, it's about to happen. No, it's not about to happen. Anyway, I think it is a minor miracle that I have my copy. Anyway, back to the game because we're supposed to talk about games here, not global supply. Uh, a far happier topic, of course. For Science is a series of spatial puzzles layered on top of each other, which makes it a minor miracle that I enjoy it. And I love For Science. It's a fabulous real-time co-op game. A solid 15 minutes on the normal difficulty level. If you make it easier, you can take more time or harder and take less time. And very much like Eric Royce's previous published game, Spirit Island, his second published game total... There are innumerable additional ways to make the game harder. You can change out the labs, you can change out the events, you can change the time, you can change the blocks themselves. There are these monochromatic blocks, so it's harder to visually identify them and it makes builds more difficult. Anyway, I say this because I finally am in a position now where I can say I I win more than half the time. I had an early series of bad losses because despite the fact that I enjoy it as a spatial puzzle... The spatial puzzle elements are are literally how you win. The final spatial puzzle in particular, there's a puzzle about building the recipes, there's a puzzle there's a puzzle about constructing them with wooden blocks, and that gives you resources with which you finally get the spatial puzzle in terms of laying out tiles to make patterns. And that last step, 
uh, is not my strong suit. Usually when it's, uh, when I'm playing solo, it's why I lose. And when playing multiplayer, I usually just have a little pre-game pep talk with my partner saying like, look, I'm going to try to pull my weight with building the recipes and actually constructing the cures. But when it comes to arranging the tiles, I hope you're in the mood to arrange some tiles because otherwise I'll just sit there and stare at them being like, maybe if I move it over here, then, and then the time runs out. So uh, it's, it, it, as I say, it's a minor miracle that I enjoyed as much as I do. And it, it's a very simple game, but it's got layers. And I'm looking forward to trying larger player counts. I've only played it with two, which is sad. Because the more players you have, the more room there is for specialization, more stuff is going on, and it would probably up the chaos. And one of the things that I enjoy about real-time games is surfing through the chaos and trying to communicate with different people in real time. And I very much am looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it and what the, the rest of the swag crew has. Uh, and I, I'm deeply sympathetic, sincerely, for the fact that you don't have your copy yet. And so I'm continuing to enjoy Force Science. Everything that I've been hearing about it for years turns out to be true. It is a marvelous experience. It is unlike other stacking games that I've played. It tests different dexterity muscles than, than other dexterity games do while still feeling very much like playing on the strengths of your traditional stacking dexterity game. And it's got a lovely sense of satire about peer research, which even though I'm not involved in, I was never involved in scientific research, I nonetheless can appreciate. And so that's been my further experience with For Science. Since you're talking about real time and stress, I scrolled all the way down to the bottom here. I introduced Chip the Third to Project Elite. Real time, stress, <laughs> love it. This game did break down into some weird spots, unfortunately, and I dislike that. I like when, you know, when you're introducing someone new to the game and then, you know, the the parts that are really terrible seem to manifest for some whatever reason. It's like we're doing a great job of killing all of the aliens and then it got down to just, you know, trying to get this one die into this place. So oh. it was like almost a full minute of rolling this single die over and over again. And this happened to both of us, but at different times. Unfortunate. Like it, was, it was one turn. He was doing it. The next turn I was doing it. And it was just like, okay, this usually does not happen like this. It doesn't. So that didn't bother him so much as he just wasn't into the, the real time thing. He said, if this was a turn based game, he'd enjoy it. He still liked, you know, many parts of it. It's just like the real time part he didn't like. As for me, I will still play it anytime. The whole production, the whole, you know, multiple missions, multiple maps, Rook team, tons of characters, interesting weapons. Love the real time. Project Elite put out first by Artipia and the newest edition by Simon. On the talk of Simon, I got to play Ankh Gods of Egypt another couple times, which made me very happy. I'm continuing to enjoy Ankh Gods of Egypt a great deal. I really think that it is among Eric Lang's best work. And one of the things that I've been paying careful attention to, because it's so controversial and because it's so novel, is the infamous merge, where near the end of the game, about two-thirds through the game, the two players in last place will become one super player with some advantages and some minor disadvantages. And uh, uh, people speculate as to different reasons as to why it's included. I think it's best to take Eric Lang at his word, where he says it's really to prevent kin-making and to make sure that everyone's involved right until the end of the game. And I really just appreciate the fact that it adds some pacing. 
and it makes the endgame feel different. You made that comment yourself, Walker, with respect to the merge in Ankh. And I think this is one of the many ways in which Ankh rewards experience and foresight. Because once you have some experience with the system, and you've played a couple times, you're in a better position to anticipate what's happening down the road. And in this particular game especially, I saw the merge coming, and I knew that I had to prepare for it. And about halfway through the game, I had to make a decision. Would I choose to try to situate myself to merge successfully and then win at, on those terms? Or would I try to avoid the merge? Now, a lot of this is a function of what strategies people are pursuing and how what people's points income are like and what people what powers people have. And so I engaged in a Herculean push to avoid the merge. And I did so just by the skin of my teeth. It was literally the tiebreaker that prevented me from being involved in the merge. And that turned out to be the winning strategy because the distance between, in this case, first and second place collectively and third place was sufficiently large that I was then able to end the game on my terms as opposed to letting the merge god catch up. But the, the merged god absolutely was catching up, had a very interesting combination of powers. And I really think that the merge, although it sometimes may lead to wonky situations, we talk an awful lot on this podcast about how some games are fragile. And I think that sometimes the merge might lead to fragility, but primarily with people who don't plan for it. Because Ankh is a very, very deterministic, no-luck game that allows for relatively large strategic horizons. And I think the merge is definitely one aspect of that. And I'm having a blast exploring Ankh. I still haven't... I, I feel like I've only scratched the surface here. Not only are there so many guardians and so many powers that I haven't experienced with, I have not even gone to another scenario yet. We're still just playing the basic scenario, let alone trying to play with the Pharaoh expansion, which some people rave about. But I am very much looking forward to exploring these additional features. And so far, my opinion on the merge is that not only is it novel but that it is actually a very interesting addition to the formula. And I don't think that it is nearly so problematic as a lot of the chatter seems to represent it. Oftentimes, it's one of those situations where someone complains about the merge and like, I have 17 reasons why the merge is a bad idea. And it's like, I don't know what game you're playing. I don't know how you've had these experiences unless people really have been dropping the ball or something very perverse happened. But that having been said, I'm trying to keep an open mind. I still haven't come down firmly as to my decision about what I think about all these elements. But again, suffice to say, it's a fascinating system and I'm having a blast exploring it. I'm pretty sure, like, in, I think in board game elements, there's nothing wrong with the merge. Like, as in a design element or in a gameplay element, I think it's perfectly fine. But then when you break it down into a person's mental experience, these mm. are my toys, Mark. These are my toys, and my <laughs> toys are on the board. And I don't want my toys to leave the board, nor do I want anyone else to play with my toys. My toys. That is an excellent perspective, and I'm sure that it can account for some of it. Has that been your personal experience? That's the feeling I had. Like, I don't, I wouldn't have that experience. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was trying to anticipate it and, and picture all the different outcomes that were going to happen, depending on who and how that last little, you know, bump up and down happened. I thought it was great, right. but I can see once it did happen, the people that were involved, I, as fe I feel as though that is what they felt. Yeah, I was involved in a merge once, and I was kind of thrilling with the possibilities. And as my partner was basically shackled to me uh, against their will by virtue of the dictates of the game, they were mostly just confused. Because again, it was their first play, and there's a lot to process in your, first, your early plays of Ankh. But I can definitely see how that sort of possessiveness or loss aversion could definitely play into things. So that's, that's something I'll definitely keep my eye open for. 
I think it's like just loss of control. You feel as though that, you know, it's like you don't have any say anymore. That's, you know, that it's the other person is, you know, going to be in charge type thing. And, you know, you have less control over what's happening, maybe. It's funny you mention that because that brings to mind actually one mild criticism I do have of the game post-merge, which is that the pacing of the game tends to slow considerably. If you're playing a four-player game, say, and everyone's just taking their individual turns, suddenly if half the game, half the players are now represented at the merge, everything has to be decided by committee. And I find that each of their turns takes roughly twice as long. So you're playing a four-player game, but it actually has the pacing of something akin to a six-player game because everyone's like, well, you know, I was thinking of doing this thing. Should I move this figure over here or should I move them over here? What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Anyway, you get the idea. I do. And that was a honk. That was honk. I got to play brass. I can play a lot more brass. Love brass. One person in our local group also loves brass. This is a game where you have nice clay chips. You have multiple strategies that you can employ in different games. It has uh, much like a two-phase game. You know, the first phase, you're putting out boats and level one buildings, and then everything gets cleared unless you were, uh, I don't want to say smart enough or whatever, because, you know, not necessarily, <laughs> not necessarily, it is, it is a strategy to try to clear your board and get some level two buildings out there so they remain for the next turn and therefore they continue to score and therefore they're giving you presence because it has this fiddly system of where you can build that has to be linked into the system unless you play a particular type of card and it seems to be the hang up for new players is figuring out where and when they can build. I'm offended on Martin Wallace's behalf if you would ever imply that sometimes he designs games with strange requirements that are difficult to internalize. How dare you, sir? that don't make a huge amount of difference. But anyway, <laughs> it's true. The turn order is so, so great. It's like how much money you spend. And so you track the money you spend. And then that was, that's going to dictate the turn order for the next turn. And that's so important because you need, you need resources to sell your resources, Mark. That's how this game works. So if you don't have enough beer to bribe the workers to ship your goods, then your goods don't ship. So this big infrastructure system that you built just sits there dead and you don't get to score all your points because you, the guy, the person just before you drank all the beer. Beer's gone. <laughs> goods sit there and rot. That is brass. This is put it. This is designed by Gavin Brown, Matt Tolman, Martin Wallace, and published by Roxley Games. We got to play a game called Paint the Roses. Paint the Roses is on Kickstarter now by North Star Games. It is a cooperative deduction game. So in the same kind of vein as Hanabi or the slightly more obscure Shipwreck Arcana. One of the things that Paint the Roses has going for it, as far as cooperative deduction games go is that it is mandated that you're not allowed to talk about what's in your cards. This is a very common thing for co-op deduction games. But everyone has something that needs to be guessed. Everyone has the information that they can't talk about, but at the same time, all the information they can talk about. So unlike other games like Hanabi, where you more or less can't talk about the game state while you're playing, obviously these games can still be social experiences. We find things to discuss, and we're able to make some maybe very gently cheating comments about how we think the game is in the, the process of punching us in the face or, oh, that was an obvious play or whatever. But in the case of Paint the Roses, you're always able to talk to a partner about some speculation about the third person. Now, there is a, a bit of a strange element because I, I've commented before that a lot of 
communication requirements or communication restrictions tend to break down in a lot of games. And Paint the Roses isn't really an exception. Here's why. Every turn, you have to make a guess as to what secret card someone is holding. And so if you're playing a three-player game, you have three options collectively on the table about what you can guess about. If I'm sitting there and I hear you and Huey get, uh, talking about what you think I'm holding, but you're go- barking up the wrong tree, when it's time for us to collectively decide on what card to guess on, it's very difficult for me to counsel that we guess someone else's card without making it clear that you're barking up the wrong tree. This is a mis- this was a concern that I had when reading the rules. This was a concern that was raised when I was teaching the game, and it was a concern that manifested itself during the game as well. But we all did our best to play the game as intended, and so when it came time to discuss what we were supposed to guess, we tended to clam up at the appropriate times, and it nonetheless worked. So, on to the actual gameplay. Paint the Roses is uh, very, very charmingly themed after the absurd whims of the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. And you are gardeners attempting to avoid execution by catering to her, her arbitrary demands. And so the theme is charming and it's incredibly well executed. Even under Tabletop Simulator, which is where we were playing, we don't have any advanced copy. It was very colorful, very enjoyable, very easy to parse. Now, note-taking on the Tabletop Simulator mod was painfully arduous and sometimes necessary because in the hard cards, you have to take notes. In person, I don't think this would be much of a problem, but in the Tabletop Simulator mod, it was painful. You're laying out tiles, and every time you lay out a tile, everyone just says whether or not that tile satisfies any of the conditions they have. And from that, you start making inferences about what conditions people have, and the goal of the game is to complete the garden. We didn't win, which is an excellent first sign. I love it when, on the first play of a cooperative game, you lose. And it's got some fascinating tempo considerations. You're encouraged to make big risks early on because the consequences for failure early on are lower. But if you're very successful early on, the game has a surprisingly organic rubber banding mechanism, whereby if you race up the track by making lots of correct guesses... The queen, who's your antagonist, starts chasing you all the harder. And so I'm not sure whether, and we talked about this an awful lot after the game, I'm not sure whether it makes sense to shoot the moon and go for the really hard stuff early because the consequences of failure are lower because there are negative consequences of success. And you're going to win the game by filling the garden regardless of how well you're doing on the quote-unquote score track. Your only job is to survive in the interim. And so suffice to say, despite the fact that the core gameplay was incredibly simple and very straightforward and easy to grok, there were a lot of subtle decisions to be made about when to guess what and what kind of cards to go for. Because as you pointed out in our discussion of the game on Pledge of Indifference, you can choose what difficulty of card to draw whenever you need to get a new a new secret card to pull. And that was really interesting. And I'm looking forward to trying more Paint the Roses. I'm a little bit concerned about its longevity. Because my understanding is that if you really want to get give the game some legs, you need the expansion, which is not available online yet, so far as I know. But I'm very much looking forward to giving it another shot. It was quick, it was lovely, and I thoroughly enjoyed the theme. Just the notion of an arbitrary dictator commanding nonsense at under pain of execution appeals to me in some darkly comic, cynical way. So that was Paint the Roses by Ben Goldman and North Star Games. Yeah, can't wait to try it. Sounds super fun. I will bring up the same sort of thing. This is another game that is just finishing on Kickstarter. It is called Keep the Heroes Out. And this is an adorable 
little game with cute little meeples, and it's very much like uh, Dungeon Keeper or any of those other type games where you're playing sort of like the evil minions against the heroes that are coming in. It's very much a tower defense cooperative game, and every player has their own unique faction, so you can either play as the Ratkin or kobolds or or skeletons and they all have their unique abilities and different number of meeples there's even a dragon player that has like one big wooden meeple that you know does its thing and they sort of have like the normal traits like there's the attacker and the defender and the support and that that kind of those kinds of mechanisms so i played it solo and i i really enjoyed it you know the all the there's a several different types of heroes that come in and they all have their own special thing that they do and they're trying to get to your horde in the center and you're trying to make sure their tokens get removed and or, or slow down without you losing too much stuff. I had a great time. I can't wait to play it multiple player. This one is being self-published by Louis Bra. So he does all of the art, designed the game, and he's publishing himself on Kickstarter. Good luck to him. It has already funded, so can't wait to get it. Keep the heroes out. We played a game of A Feast for Odin on Board Game Arena. This is an alpha. So Warm Boy, who is an alpha player, he's very much an alpha gamer. When I think of an alpha, I think of Warm Boy. He shepherded us under his broad, loving wing and let us pass the velvet rope leading us into the alpha area. Clearly, I'm mixing my metaphors here. We played A Feast for Odin on Board Game Arena, and... A Feast for Odin reminded me of two elements of online asynchronous gaming that I very much hate. One of them is, there's nothing like playing an asynchronous game to remind you of all the things in the round structure that can grind the pacing of the game to a halt that you forgot were there. I figured, oh yeah, yeah, Feast for Odin, yeah, yeah, it's got a relatively cumbersome turn structure, but a lot of it is, you know, give yourself some resources from a harvest, flip over these colonies, put out a new resource strip, whatever, that'll all be automated by the system, right? Well, then there's the... Well, would you like to put more goods onto your board? No, I don't want to put more goods on my board. Okay, well, now I'm going to wait for these other yahoos to decide if they want to put their goods on their board. And this is repeated three times every round. Ugh. Ugh. I wish the, yeah, I wish there was a toggle there where it's like, these, these people were dumb enough not to put goods on their boards. And now it's too late. On with the right. next turn. <laughs> yeah, I'd actually like that. I mean, sure, you might end up with like minus 50 points from forgetting to feed your Vikings, but what have you. There could be a prompt on your last turn, right? Like, this is your last turn. This is your last opportunity to put goods on your board for these following three things. Are you sure? And that might expedite things, but I don't know. It had a weird two-phase thing. It was like, would you like to put more goods on your board? Yes or no. It had to cycle through all the players. And then it was put goods on your feast board. And then after you did that, you had yet another phase after that. Would you like to put goods on your board before you get your rewards? And it was like, oh, do we really need this other phase? Yeah. Yeah. It was awful. The other thing, well, again, only because it was asynchronous. Synchronous play, it'd be fine, I'm pretty sure. The other problem that I had with it was more psychological in that when you start a game of A Feast for Odin, technically speaking, your score is minus many. Uh, because you start with this board full of negative point spaces, and one of the goals of the game is to cover those up with various goods. And psychologically, I was unprepared for the shock of the, for your first easily four to five rounds of being deep, deep in the red. I, I honestly, for much of the game, was like, have I been cheating in real life? Because I, I thought I was okay at this game. Not great, but I thought that I was competent at least. And for so much of the game, I was struggling because there was that huge negative number staring me in the face. Now, 
the last two rounds, things turned around and I got a score that was roughly comparable to what I remember my scores being. And so I'm reasonably confident that I haven't been misapplying the game this entire time. But it was a very strange experience in that sense. Now, all of that having been said, the implementation so far is supremely impressive because A Feast for Odin is a game with a heavy spatial element of putting tiles in various places and that was managed surprisingly well for a web-based implementation that will work on pretty much any device. And the other element that I thought was really well done was all the profession cards. There are only four profession cards in the entire game of which there are many that are not going to be implemented. The rest of them have all the systems implemented that I could see. There was this one profession card that said that at any time you could trade in this kind of good for one of these other kinds of goods. I'm like, hmm, I wonder how that works. And I just tried clicking on the card, and sure enough, you click on the card and it says, would you like to transfer these resources? And I said, sure! And so it was a breeze to use. Information management is a little cumbersome, but again, that's not their fault. You know, there's the colony boards off to the side, there's the resource strips, you all have to click on tabs to see all those things, but I mean, again, it's a challenge of implementing it digitally. Sometimes it's a challenge just to fit all that on the table in real life, it, never mind, exactly. you know, implementing it on a computer. That's absolutely true. But to repeat something that I've said many times on the show, when it is the case the information is sequestered away and I have to click to a hidden tab in order to see it, and then I'm only looking at that, I find it very difficult to integrate that into my complete understanding of the game. Every time I had a thought about what to do, I would think, okay, well, what colonies could I take? Oh, look at that. Click on the thing. Then I'm looking at the colonies. And then I forget what kind of boats I have. And so I have to go back to look at my boats to see what colonies I can take. And just integrating it all in my head, I found very difficult. All of that having been said, I found a number of elements of the implementation very, very impressive, as I mentioned, and A Feast for Odin remains to me an utter joy in terms of playing. Yes, it's multiplayer solitaire. Yes, it's mostly about managing your own kind of boards, but I thoroughly enjoy A Feast for Odin. I think it's one of Uwe Rosenberg's best, although there, he has games with more pointed player interaction, Agricola coming to mind immediately. A Feast for Odin is tremendously well done, and I will happily play it any day of the week. And if there were an opportunity to play A Feast for Odin synchronously, I would jump at the chance. Asynchronously again? Probably not. We return to a game called After the Empire. This is published by Gray Fox Games and designed by Evan Halbert and Ryan Mulk. This is a heavy plastic game. You're actually building your little fortress, either out of wood or upgrading it to stone later. You have towers. You have these... Uh, barbarians or raiders attacking every turn you're purchasing these cards that will give you bonuses you're having lookouts you're you're hiring mercenaries you're collecting wood you're trying to repair your castles and put out fires it was enjoyed by all still had all the problems that that we talked about before where they had all these fantastic cards but they weren't utilized very well Still enjoyed it, still looks fabulous, still has that, I think it's going to get the closest to that feeling of, you know, building building and defending a castle in in a short amount of time and not so much rules overhead that it becomes el tedium. Strange, those are two Spanish words that I would definitely use to associate my experiences with After the Empire. Glad you enjoyed it, though. <laughs> I played... Another game called Mercado del, del Lisboa. So this is a, Vida, a Vidal Cerda game. And apparently this is one of the uh, part of uh, Lisboa that was pulled out. And I found it very fun, so they should put it back in. 
<laughs> oh, well, see, that's the thing. Lisboa clearly needed about five or ten more mechanisms. That was the shortcoming. He just needed to put more stuff in there. Good point. Apparently. So Mercado Lisboa is just this grid, and you're putting out markets, and you're putting out restaurants, and you're trying to manage your money because your money is points. And in order to do something in a row and column, it's going to cost you as much as there are other things in that row or column. So you're sort of spending more money to try to make more money and then you're you're uh, playing these customer cards down the rows and columns which is going to multiply that type of restaurant with the goods that they want and the restaurants you have with the suppliers that are beside them it is just one of these games that I'm not going to go too far into the rules but it's just my jam this sort of you know figuring out the puzzle getting the pieces that you need because you can sort of sabotage people by putting not so sufficient cards in the column and, and using that because once the card's there, it's and that column's done. So you can sort of, well, oh, I'm sorry, but only two customers came to that row instead <laughs> of like the, the four that could have or where else it's a race because all of these things rush the end of the game because once, you know, there's a few, uh, enough of the customers out, then the game will end or enough of the stalls that are out. Really quick little game. This is also on Board Game Arena. I highly suggest checking it out. I had so much fun. I can't say enough about this game. Mercado de Lisboa. It's put out by Eagle Griffin Games. And like I said, it is by Vidal Lacerda and Julian Pombo. I'm vaguely curious. I'll have to give that a try. Didn't actually play this game, but I just wanted to mention it nonetheless. I had a joy watching people play Skull. There are few occasions where I would rather watch people play a game than play a game myself. But there are some games that I find almost as good as a spectator as I do actually playing them. And one of them is absolutely Skull. These were strangers. These were just people who'd set up a game uh, at the table. And I was there for other purposes. And I just asked permission if I could watch. And then just sat and watched these people I didn't know agonize and bluff their way through a game of Skull. They were playing a lot of the rules wrong. But I'm not the kind of guy who'd be like, oh, excuse me, people who are having a good time. You're enjoying yourselves wrong. Nonetheless, the core was there. It was great. I saw people down to one tile, playing their, with gusto, trying to pretend as though they actually had some control of the matter, even though they, they only had the one tile left. People making incredibly harsh bids. People starting bids they knew they couldn't follow up on just to draw other people out. All the classic things from Skull. And just watching other people sweat is just such a delightful social experience in Skull. And when you don't actually have to worry about your own bids and your own fortunes, I find it all the more delicious. Same thing with Coyote. There's something about watching people play bluffing games that I find intensely enjoyable. And so I just wanted to give a quick shout out for Skull, the seven-player experience with you as the seventh player. Nice. So we return to Cine Tempora. This is put out by Ludus Magnus Studios. And it is a silly large Kickstarter game that has tons of stuff. And then after playing it several times, I realized that was the reason why I got this particular starter. There are tons of campaign systems and games out there that say, you have a yellow stat, roll the yellow die, kill the yellow monster. And and this is not one of them. This is a game that has dozens and dozens of skills tons of rules and stuff you have to constantly look up. And if you want a game like that, then this is the game. Essentially, 
what I love about it, it has a Ron, uh, like a sort of rondelle time system. So actions take a certain amount of time. You move your token along and whoever's at the back gets to go next. The part that is interesting is that the enemies are also on this rondelle. And if you pass an enemy on the rondelle, then they get to react. And that is the very interesting part of the game. So, so you can sort of judge how much you do and just butt up against them. So you're not making them react or making sure you're far enough away because like other good systems that have a reaction thing like this, they can only react to the person that is activating at that moment. Unlike other ones that will react to anyone and make it impossible to do anything. Anyway, I will not go on too, too much about it, but this is our Sunday game. We're going to have more of this. It has this giant map that you bring out at the beginning as you're, you know, going around this planet and you sort of come here to try to inhabit it. And you find out that people use this as a gaming reserve and now you are the prey. So you sort of have to work your way around it and collect resources and build weapons and we'll see how it goes. I'm enjoying it. Everyone else is enjoying it. Cyan Tempora. Played another game of Root. Now, I, I remarked last time I played Root that I was curious to see if I was willing to, having become accustomed to a certain standard of Root gameplay with all the expansions and a certain amount of additional Etsy purchased bling, if I'd enjoy going back to the base game, to which the answer was absolutely unambiguously yes. This time, however, I was playing a base game of Root of the first printing. And so this was another question. Would I be willing to return to the base game of Root without the balance changes. There were a couple of small but very significant balance changes, in particular to both the Vagabond and to the Woodland Alliance. Long story short, the Vagabond gets to score points on enmity even when being attacked, which which makes a further dis disincentive to attacking the Vagabond, which is one of the weaknesses of the game of Root. And also, the Woodland Alliance is in a position where not to get too far into the weeds, if you fight a battle of attrition with the Woodland Alliance, they just keep scoring points the entire time, as opposed to after the balance changes, where their initial sympathy that they put out doesn't give them any points. And so this actually gives you an incentive to wipe them from the board if they are doing too well. Because Root is one of the few games that self-balances, namely the, the players are expected to hold the leader in check, that I find actually works in a satisfactory way. It's not just a lazy hand wave to say, oh, well, eh, sure, the factions aren't balanced, but players balance the factions by themselves. I, I find that often a cop-out, but in the case of Root, I actually find that it works due to a variety of clever design decisions and elements of the dynamic. However... I would like to say that the absence of the balance revisions actually irked me. I really feel that when it comes to the, rev the revisions to the core factions, I don't want to go back. So this applies also to the lizards, but the lizards were the lizard cult were introduced in an expansion and we didn't have access to that. So I've I've found my limit to how far I'm willing to regress as far as Root is concerned. Base game, still A plus gameplay, still highly recommended. But now having experienced the gameplay revisions and the refinements that that uh, later games and Cole Worley put out to help a little bit with some of the overpowered factions and to buff the underpowered faction in the lizard cult, I am not willing to return to things before. So whenever possible, the circumstance under which I would play Root is with those revisions in play. Despite that, however, I still love the fundamental asymmetry about Root. I love the, the story that it tells about asymmetric warfare, about counterinsurgency, about power... And I think that it does a great job of evoking that, all at the same time being incredibly, incredibly cute. So that is my further experiences with Root from Cole Worley and later games. Lastly for me, Mark, Anno 1800. We finally got a physical copy 
to the table. And yes, setting it up is El Tedium. <laughs> oh my goodness. I didn't know you had such a, an affinity for the romance languages, Walker. Like, just brutal. Like, how many tokens and how many counters and then eight decks you have to shuffle and then, oh, it was painful. That Ugh. being said, the gameplay is much better in person. Knowing who has what already purchased and who you can trade with, that moves much much quicker. Keeping track of the end game scoring cards because they're always right there. Not something you have to like scroll the board around and highlight or something. Just always having them, you know, visible. All of these things make for the gameplay to move not only much faster, but me much more enjoyable. And that being said, the fact that it moves much faster, it makes me wonder whether taking the time to set up all this stuff in the first place is even worth it. But still, no, 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 awkward. This is designed by Martin Wallace and put out by Cosmos. It is a game where there are tons of goods on the board and you sort of make sort of little tech trees. It's like, okay, I have ham and and coal and, of course, that makes soap. And now that I have soap and brass, that makes a helicopter. And I have a helicopter <laughs> and a llama. And, of course, that has nuclear weapons. And then you nuke them. And that is Anno 1800. That was the best session report I've ever heard in my life, Walker. <laughs> and those are the games we played last two weeks and on now to the news and why it doesn't matter red cathedral by devere games is getting a big expansion that is the news from that and that's all i know that's all they've told us look for that i really enjoyed red cathedral also they're putting out i'm wondering mark if it's the the success of the avatar role-playing system because they've already announced that they're doing the gi joe one and now now just uh cowboy bebop the role-playing system huh now we both enjoy cowboy bebop but i really don't feel as though they flushed out a world in that anime you know it was there but it's very generic space world it was you know it was very much based on character development and story development not so much world development so i just i'm not sure what's there I wouldn't agree with your characterization of the world as generic. I feel that there was some interesting stuff there, particularly with respect to the failed colonization of Mars and the destruction of the gate and various elements of organized crime and law enforcement. But I do agree with you that the show was primarily character driven and not so much about the world. And just a, there are tons of role playing systems that are designed to accommodate roughly that kind of science fiction and that kind of environment. And you could easily adapt it to the universe of Cowboy Bebop without too much difficulty. On the subject of role-playing, there is a there is a role-playing system coming on Kickstarter that's called Secrets of the Vibrant Isle. And it's a solo role-play. And I'm wondering if you could tell me what that is. <laughs> well, I can't say what that is. I'm not familiar with it, but I've played like, no, solo. What, what solo role-play is, like, is it, is it really role play or is it choose your own adventure? I'm just wondering if they're being a little fast and loose with, you know, the role playing words here. In my experience, it is a process of guided storytelling whereby you're given essentially prompts that you then flesh out with your own narrative. In other words, it's very much like collaborative role playing in that it is 
shared storytelling, but the prompts, instead of being produced by either a game master in the case of a system with game masters or purely from the other players in the game masterless systems, the writing prompts themselves tend to be spat out by a system, somewhat randomized or not, case depending, and then you flush it out yourself in order to, to give meat to the narrative. Gotcha. So it's choose your own adventure. Okay. So I don't know why about... I bother sometimes. I mean, you ask me these questions and I give you a thought. I don't know why. I don't know why I bother. So we talked about uh, Feast for Odin being on Board Game Arena. I have some other Board Game Arena news. Gaia Project is now an alpha on Board Game Arena. They did a great job. It's not as good as the app, but it is getting there. And Ultimate Railroads is also in beta on Board Game Arena. So if that's something you wanted to check out, that's going to be coming out soon. Uh, I'm in the middle of a game. They have all sorts of new stuff, like the boards are all changed and all sorts of different abilities. So if you enjoyed Russian Railroads at all, then definitely check out Ultimate Railroads. It's not just a reprint. It is lots of changes, lots of differences. Check it out. We are approaching the 59th anniversary of the day that Vasily Arkhipov single-handedly saved the entire world. No hyperbole, no hype. On October 27, 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Vasily Arkhipov averted nuclear catastrophe and averted an event that many people on both sides of the Soviet-American divide agree would have ended civilization and human life as we know it. And we think, therefore, here at Survey Robot Games, the man deserves, at the very least, a holiday. So on October 27th, please join us in celebrating Arkhipov Day. Plus, there's an Arkhipov Day theme song by a band called Lemon Knife. Lemon Knife is a two-piece uh, punk rock group from Chicago featuring John on drums and lyrics and with Mia on bass and lead vocals. The song Two Atomic Heroes is about Vasily Arkhipov and Stanislav Petrov. No slight on Petrov, but Arkhipov Day is about Vasily Arkhipov. You can find Lemon Knife on Spotify and you can check out their work I, for one, am a fan of Two Atomic Heroes. I think Vasily Arkhipov needs as many things as possible to honor him. And on that topic, our Arkhipov Day sale continues on Patreon. If you pledge for 10 months up front, you will get two months free. This will continue at least for the rest of the month of October. And that is the end of my plug for Arkhipov Day, the most under-celebrated holiday in human history. And now, on to our feature game, which is Korra, Rise of an Empire. Quickly first, Mark. I'm I'm not sure if it's happened before, but this is the first time I know for sure that this is a game that we were reviewing that we have not played together. That is correct. So it's actually a bit of a shame because I would have liked you there because I know you're more of an authority on these things. I thought that the theming was very strange because Korra wasn't there, Mako wasn't there, Bolin wasn't there. Nobody did any bending whatsoever. So I don't no know. No Sky like, Bison as... either. Like I kept thinking, no sk- okay, any time now. No Polar Dogs, they didn't know Republic City, no Avatar at all, no Ben... Uh, strangest licensed game anyway. Anyway, Korra Rise of an Empire was designed by Headquarters Simulation Game Club and published by Yellow this year. It is a review copy we got from the publisher on Walker's End, and on my end, a copy that I bought with hard-earned money. It is a re-implementation of a 2017 game called Improvement of the Polis, also by Headquarters Simulation Game Club, that they self-published. And it is... It's not actually themed after the Legend of Korra. That is what you would call a lie. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Korra Rise of an Empire? In Korra, you're trying to figure out how to get revenge on inanimate objects. Those dice will pay. They will suffer at my hands. (laughs) Future generations of those dice will feel shame due to the atrocities (laughs) wrought by their ancestors. In, In Korra... You are utilizing your faction power to help mitigate the randomness 
in the dice and in political cards and tracks, 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 tracks. So I'm going to follow Walker's format that he he fought very hard for 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 many years, but has recently stepped away from, whereby you start with the positives and then you work your way to the negatives. So with that gotcha. in mind, I would like to say that I think the components broadly were very nice, even though I'm not a huge fan of the icons and some of the color choices were weird. And I think that the insert was banging. It's got a banging insert. That about covers it. I'm done with the positives, Walker. What do you have to say? Gotcha. So in Cora, <laughs> you need to puzzle out what you need to get done. All right. You need to figure out where you're going to get the money and do you have enough citizens to do what you need to do? And and how do I use, and you have these scroll tokens and how are you going to use these scroll tokens? Like, are you going to use them for? for how dare uh, you? Those are philosophy tokens, Walker. Philosophy tokens. Sorry. Don't sorry, erase sorry. my field. We're only fundamental to the development of Western civilization. Don't write us out of the narrative. So you got to figure out how to get these tokens to play political cards. And how are you going to get these tokens? Are you going to spend, are you going to buy them with money? Are you going to use philosophy tokens? Or are you going to do the military explore action? So there's all these things that are going on. What you're doing essentially is, I have it set up here, Mark, that you sort of go through a game. So the setup is very... I'm not going to say it's as bad as Anno 1800, but there is an array of tokens that need to be it's pretty tiresome. specific spots on the board. And then, but they did a great job. This is a game by Yellow and they do a lot of sort of introductory family games. So they know how to present a rule book and how to present a game. So they did a great job with the event cards. They have two, the, the first card and the last card are marked just slightly separately. So they look very much like all the other, other event cards, but so it's very easy to set up one on the top, one on the bottom, seven in the middle, and you're ready to go. And then it introduces people to the drafting system, which in your first game, means nothing because you have no idea what these political cards are doing. You have no idea how they really work. So you quickly draft five cards. Later games will mean much more. And I think the play, the gameplay overall goes very well. This, there's a great summary right on your board. You can flow down that chart fairly quickly. And the game only lasts, like I just said, nine turns, but you really want 11. I'm sure not in Mark's case, but it is one of these <laughs> games where you you really wish you had that one more turn and the game ends just at the right time. And I think that's the good part about it. So let's, let's start by talking about the dice. I don't object. Let me just be very clear. I don't object to the randomness of the dice. I actually felt that the randomness of the dice were fine. I just felt that it was kind of a lazy and pointless design decision. I just didn't understand why they were there. Effectively what the dice do for you is they determine a random drain on citizens. Because you can take whatever action you want, but if the action you have has a number that is higher than the die you've rolled, you just pay for the difference in citizens. So net-net, at the end of the day, it's just a random loss of citizens every round if you happen to roll poorly. And there's no compensation other than turn order, which is practically irrelevant, more on that later, to rolling low. In point of fact, when the first event comes out, the first event is precisely a compensation for people who roll badly. I don't understand why that isn't in every turn of the game. Most Euro games where your actions are driven by dice, there is some element in compensation if you roll really badly and or some ability to, to, to juke the dice. First of all, high rolls are strictly better than low rolls. There's no, there's no two ways about it. And there's no 
leg up if you consistently roll poorly. So again, I, I don't really object to how random they are. It just struck me as obnoxious. It didn't improve decisions or constrain in an interesting way. I think it did. For me, I think it did improve decisions because it adds another layer of puzzle onto your turn because you, now you have to figure out how to do what you want with what you've got as opposed to I'm just going to choose whatever I want to do because I can pick whatever I want. You sort of say, oh, I needed to get you know, X number of dollars, but I can't do it using that particular action. I have to, you know, figure out how to do it. Maybe I'll do it with this action instead. And uh, like the explore action, well, I'll do it with explore instead and then attack an icon that gives me money or, you know, you know, just do things a different way, different ways to puzzle things out, different decisions. I, I think you're overselling the complexity of the economy and your ability to pivot I want to say, don't get me wrong. I, I also thought it was very arbitrary. I just wanted to present the other side of the coin. I, I, I don't feel as strongly about it as you do, but I did feel it did rub me as, as sort of like just a felt almost it's like it was an essential part of the game, but it felt like sort of this tacked on hovering thing at the time. You know what I mean? It was, it definitely had a weird feeling. And then and, it and was, indeed, then the, that, that tacked on ancillary unnecessary elements is primarily my objection. Yeah. And then there was an action that there's an action that gives you citizens that, like we said, that you have to pay when you when you want to do more expensive actions. And it's like, then we had a sort of a discussion about with the people that, that I was playing with. It's like, well, at least it's just not an action that gets citizens. It also lets you, you know, draw political cards as well. So you get to get political cards that way. And I said, oh, yeah, that's true. You know, at least it's not just a wasted action. And then later on, I thought, well, that's the two big random parts of the game, right? Yes. Are the dice and the political cards and now they've lumped them both together so it's just sort of like <laughs> it's just sort of like the wasted action it's like okay well things went badly click the mitigation button right so on the topic of the cards i'm glad you raised that because that's the element of randomness that i did object to in terms of i feel un unfairly favoring or disfavoring some players. Now, granted, the initial cards are drafted, and that is a considerable way to smooth it out because some of the core tracks that you talked about, there's no organic way to go up the tracks other than certain benchmarks that are that you might hit once or twice over the course of the game and or these political cards. I'm thinking particularly of the income track. Now, that, that's a bit of an ambiguity because there are two different income tracks. And for a simple game, the iconography and the fact that there are two tracks that often cover roughly the same procedures can be a little bit confusing. And it certainly was for my early experiences with, with Korra. But if you start out the game with some of those cards that, that boost your fundamental income track, that's great. If you don't, that's not as great. That's not so hot. Similarly, near the end of the game, maybe you'll draw some cards that are big endgame scoring cards. Maybe you won't. And it's one of those situations where, and we've talked about this in other games, like, for example, Anno 1800, you know, those cards you draw near the end of the game. Oh, I, I, I already have these prerequisites. Great. I'm happy to be me. Or you might go fishing through the deck trying to find something to play and you're just going to come up empty. So the initial draft is fine. I find the initial draft kind of sort of smooths out some of my objections. But after that, the card play just struck me as grossly arbitrary. Yeah, you're right. It definitely has that ticket to ride problem where not only, but it even has a, a layer deeper than that. It's not like, oh, I happen to draw a, a point scoring card. It's I happen to draw a point scoring card that works completely with the strategy that it, a, my faction does, and the one that right. I was particularly leaning hard towards in the first place. 
Right, and so I, I've seen enough times players just not get any infrastructure bonuses from their cards and not get any political benefits, or the the opposite, just start off with the card that says, you know, here, race up the income track. That's great, here's free money for effectively nothing, and or those scoring cards. Now, I will say this. The prerequisite system on the cards I thought was pretty cool because normally in order to play a card, you need to have acquired some tokens in some combination. And if you don't have those prerequisites, you can throw philosophy at the problem. So that kind of trade-off, do I wait to play this card later after organically acquiring the tokens through the quote-unquote explore action? I don't know why it was called that because the best of my recollection, Walker, you don't send heavily armed men to go stomp around and burn down temples in an act of exploration. I don't know if that was a joke about colonial or something, but I don't know why it was called Explore. It's Military Conquest. It's the Conquer action. It's it uh, uh, baffling. Anyway, but that trade-off was neat. You either go get the tokens organically, or you throw philosophy at the problem, or in an expensive half measure to play the card prematurely, as it were. That part I thought was cool. It's just everything about getting the cards rubbed me the wrong way. Agreed. And I, I like them for all the same reasons. I, I love the fact that it, they cost money to play, which you had to spend, but tokens were just something you had to have. You didn't have to spend them. You just sort of had to have the yes. prerequisites. And then you talked about earlier I, about the money, money versus the tax. And I, I thought at first, yes, it was confusing because there was two symbols that were almost identical that were one was for money exactly. and was, was for your tax level, right? It was odd. But I really thought in the long run, I liked the difference between the tax was money that you got at the beginning of every turn and the economy track was when you took a particular action, that's how, mon- how much money you'd get. I, I liked the fact that it was two different tracks and that you had choices on how to get up on the two. I think they could have done a better job both graphically and terminologically differentiating them. That's all. True. And like you said, the the tax track is very important. And I like how they tied that in with the achievements is because when you, there are several achievements that you get during the game. And when you achieve it, you have a choice of either getting glory or going up the tax track. And I do think that is a important choice and a hard choice to make which one to take. All told, I think I, I would have been a little bit happier if the advancing up the tax track or advancing up the glory track were a little bit more baked into the design and not offshored so much into the political cards. Agreed. But I agree so we, with what you said. So we sort of skipped over the events. The you first thing you do is you reveal the event for the turn, and it's sort of very much Orlean style where you, you have an event and then you have the whole turn to try to work either towards so it doesn't penalize you or too, so it'll give you the reward as opposed to other players. Unfortunately, a lot of times it was to force you to worry about or care about getting troops because a lot of yes. the cards uh, are based on whoever has the mo- the highest troop level, which is unfortunate, but... The overwhelming majority of events are tied to your troop level. And given that your track, your military track advances so slowly, because it's very expensive to increase. The, the, there are your, as I said, there there's the tax track and the military track, and those tracks you advance very seldom and with great difficulty, if, largely for good reason because they're very consequential. But then there are your, the three tracks on your player board. Those you generally speaking advance once per turn. If that, because it's very expensive and you're only allowed one. You can do more with the philosophy tokens, because again, with philosophy, all things are possible, and you become some sort of hyperborean superhuman envied by everybody. That is the gift that philosophy gives to you, certainly in my life experience. But 
as a result, you can't, it's, it's not quite like Orléans because you can't pivot over the course of the turn. If you're two steps behind the leader on the military track, you can't catch up in a round. That's not realistic at all. It's So the events just end up, in my experience, repeatedly bashing the player who's last place on the military track in the face. And this isn't a situation in like Through the Ages, for example, because the military system in Through the Ages, a story of civilization, tends, again, to penalize people with the weaker military. But number one, there, in my experience, you can pivot on a dime. If you spend a turn, if you set things up, you can spend a turn and go from last place to first place in military if you work hard enough and are clever enough. And number two, generally speaking, if you're in last place in military and through the ages, it's because you've been churning out culture like crazy or science or something else. In Korra, broadly speaking, being behind one or two steps on the military track was very, very difficult to catch up with, and the events in particular just kept hammering you, and I did not find that satisfying. Well, well, in my gameplays, it wasn't so bad because the people that were high on the military track used the military because when you, like the explore action that we talked about, when you take it, you're losing troops. So they're already hovering down near the bottom as well. So even if you didn't advance your military, you can play some political cards that will give you some military. You can, there are other ways to go up on the military track. And sometimes it could be a fight because when you choose your actions, they are face down. And as they flip up, Either A, they didn't take the military, or when they take it and they see that you've taken it, when they go to do the explore action, they have to sometimes choose a different token. They'll have to choose one that they either A, didn't want or not as good as the one they wanted because they have to make sure that they don't lose as many troops and therefore stay at the top. So I felt there was a little bit more conflict there. Fair enough. I guess at the end of the day, the bigger problem with the events, with their emphasis on military is, to my mind, it made people select the military action more often than they would otherwise. And it really felt like the event cards were just narrowing the focus of the game in a way that I didn't feel was necessarily beneficial. Because Korra presents itself as, you know, in a very light level, a very abstract level, representing the traditional trade-offs of your Civ game. You can focus on culture, you can focus on economics, you can focus on military. But when the events are telling you, well, better go back to military round after round after round... It's encouraging the people with the military advantage to keep pumping their military advantage. It's also sometimes encouraging the people who are militarily weak to try to double down on military to catch up. So, Yeah, and the other problem was if, if it wasn't whoever's highest on the, on the troop track, it would be benefits for everyone. And benefits for everyone are benefits for no one. So it, it was just this weird, like, either A, yeah. it was whoever happened to be military, or B, everyone gets two coins. Well... Or everyone loses two citizens, or everyone loses a coin. Yeah, the the events overall struck me as obnoxious. Other than that first event, that first event I think was good and should have been baked into the system. Yeah, it should be, this is, you know, the event for the rest of the game, and then these other ones as well. And But on top of that, it's a good good way to track turns as well, so you can see how many turns are, are coming up, and it makes sure you don't skip any turns as well. That is true. So, like I said, you announce the event, then you do tax, you get some money, you roll your dice, and then you choose two actions at the beginning of the game from seven actions that are there. And they're numbered zero through six, and you roll your two dice, and like we said, depending on what you roll, you might have to pay some compensation depending on what actions you choose. You can go up a certain track that will give you three dice, and then you start at zero and and whoever picks zero does zero, and then you go one, two, three, five, six. Everyone does all the different actions. And I think we've talked about all the ones that we want to talk about. 
there, except for the the politically play, there's these political cards we've sort of already hinted at. There's three different kinds. We've talked about the ones that give you victory points. There's also ones that will uh, give you abilities for the rest of the game, sort of like uh, make other actions better. And there are some that are instants that will do what they do immediately. Can we talk about the player interaction? Uh, just a second. Let me look for, I think I have it somewhere here. Player interaction, player interaction. I, I, I can't seem to find it anywhere, Mark. <laughs> yeah. There is an ever so slight, sometimes, element of grab this vaguely different token first. And that's about it. And as we've said last week, multiplayer solitaire can be just fine. I don't necessarily object to multiplayer solitaire, but I never think that it's advantageous. And given that I've already made clear that I don't find the systems involved in Korra to be particularly engaging or substantive on their own, the fact that it's all heads down certainly didn't enhance the experience. And then there's the very last action, which is called development. And this is based off of your faction that you've chosen. So there's this giant deck of factions and they slide nicely into your player board and you have this nice little arrow that moves up four different levels of your development of your civilization and i feel as though if you do not follow this track and other players are you will lose it's not one of these games where the the powers are just sort of arbitrary and don't do very much. These are quite substantial. They definitely point you in a certain direction, but I don't think that's a terrible thing unless you're only playing it, you know, once or twice. But if you're playing it a few times, because it really doesn't take that much time, uh, it get, lets you, you know, flush out different parts of the game that you wouldn't normally play. And it also provides considerable in-game scoring. Which, again, if you don't go up that track, you're probably asking for trouble. Which, again, points to the fact that I think that in the bones of Korra, there is some possibility. It's just when you look at some of the elements like the dice activation system, like the points that you might get from political cards, they stand in stark contrast to those elements where there are actually potentially interesting trade-offs, like your race up your own development track because you need to get those endgame points. I mean, compared to the endgame points delivered from cards, it's much more solid, much less arbitrary. But then, of course, it leans into the fact that the development action is the number six, which means unless you roll a six, you're going to be paying to do it, which leans into the the unfortunate dice activation system. So, I, you know, th there is good stuff here in Korra. It's just really marred by a whole bunch of the other stuff that's included, I think. All right, now that everyone's finished doing all their actions, we go to a phase that's called progress, where now you have three tracks on your player board and you decide which one you want to go up and play some and pay some coins to do so. And I thought that was definitely a decision space there. It's like... Do you, when you, when you get money, do you want more money? When you get troops, do you want more troops? Or do you want to go up the central one, which will get your extra actions and more stuff along the way? And a lot of them just give you like more money or victory points or stuff as you go up the tracks. The key thing that the going up the tracks added to me was how tight money is, because going up the tracks is very expensive, but very much worth it. And so managing your cash. I did find relatively satisfying. I thought the the pressure on the economy was overall enjoyable. Uh, that having been said, again, when you're not using your money to go up tracks, usually you're saving your money for playing political cards. And again, I really didn't like a lot of what was going on in the political cards. So one step forward, one step back. Also in the progress phase, it once again shows the power of philosophy. 
right? Because you can also play a philosophy scroll and move up two spaces on tracks. If you have the cash, yes. If you have the cash. As everyone knows, philosophy can get you very far in life, but you're still going to need money. You still have that student debt. All right. Then after the progress phase. Oh, no, 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 no. I I graduated without student debt because I I went to (laughs) school in Quebec, boy. I didn't mean you personally. (laughs) So after you progress, then you're going to resolve the event, whatever event it is there that turn. And then you go into what we call the achievement phase. And this is very much like food chain magnet. Food Chain Magnet, where... How dare you, Sully Food Chain Magnet, by bringing oh, that stop. game into so a discussion of the, this game? It's the same sort of thing. Whoever has the prerequisites for these achievements, they get them, and then that achievement is locked off for everybody else. Yes, but rather than encouraging trade-offs, and rather than introducing interesting new special powers into the mix, I, it, it's amazing to me that you don't tar it with your same criticism of those who are winning just get to win more. Because it's just, do you have some points? Here, have a little bit more. I don't object to it. The achievements are fine. They're just kind of boring. One of them is like that. For sure, the whoever gets to 10 victory points first gets more stuff is. But the rest of them aren't too bad. Some of them sort of push you in directions that you normally wouldn't do just to try to get to that achievement. I, I like, Really? I, yeah, I think so. I, I like uh, how you, it sort of dictates your actions because you look around the board. It's like, okay, well, two people have two political cards out. And as soon as you have three out, then you get you get an achievement. So, you know, sort of, well, do I, you know, try to force it now? Well, he doesn't have much money. So you're like looking around seeing if you need to do it that turn. I think it, it does sort of add. So there's uh, first to 10 victory points, first to six troops, whoever gets to four on the economy track first, playing three political cards. And then there's that decision after you get the achievement that I talked about. Are you going to go up on the tax track or are you going to take glory? And then after nine turns, you're at the end of the game. Yay! Hooray! Sweet release! you're going to score some victory points, like Mark said, but not all, I was going to say it then, but not all player boards give you victory points at the end of your four stages. Some of them... That is true. Some of them do not. And then uh, the political cards, which we already talked about, the one, if you just happen to uh, draw some that have... uh, victory points and or if they give you victory points at all because you didn't go up those particular tracks will give you victory points and then a nice easy wreaths times wreaths which is the glory that we've talked about you know going up the glory track you go up the glory track as you advance up the military track and also when you get achievements and then when you do the explore actions to get these tokens if you spend enough of your swords, you can get these uh, explore tokens that have wreath symbols on them. So number of wreath tokens times your position on the glory track will give you a significant amount of points if you happen to focus on that. Uh, yes, those great famous Greek hoplite explorers who would explore rival city-states and visit them. Can you can you hear the, the quotes around these verbs that I'm using, Walker? I, I do. So I think I think we've had we both had different experiences with Cora. Everyone that we've played with it loved it, and we happily pulled it out many times. I'm not saying that it is a perfect game or a fantastic game. I just think it it's a game that flows very well. It gives you a lot of decisions. Looks fantastic, and there's no fiddly bits. There's no you know back case corner rules or you know things you have to look up. The rule book hasn't come out since the first game. 
That is absolutely true, but I would say that some of the confusion over the iconography does contribute to something akin to fiddliness. Because every time I've shown it to someone new, I have to walk them through the difference between this economy track and that economy track. This economy track triggers under these circumstances. This other economy track triggers under these other circumstances. This icon means cash. This icon means income. And that level of confusion is strange for such a simple game. It's like, see, this is an owl. See, it's just the owl. See this owl? It's got a ring around it. Two totally different things. See this piece of money? It has an owl on it. See, it's how it's round? That's the money. The other one, not money. I don't even mean to harp so much on these minor issues of presentation because, yes, it's visually engaging. It's very accessible. It's very approachable, rather. Uh, we should stop using accessible for approachable. I saw a very good thread about how people on uh, arguing on behalf of disability communities. There's we shouldn't be using the term accessible because that should that means something different. It is very approachable. It's very rules light. You don't have to go checking back into the rulebook all the time. But honestly, there are the things that really bother me, such as the dice allocation, such as the way cards work. But the rest of it, it doesn't involve what I consider to be interesting trade offs, interesting player interaction, interesting decisions, any interesting thematic elements. The theming here is paper thin. And so it strikes me overall as a pointless experience. The only things that stood out to me when playing Korra were the bits that made me, quite frankly, disappointed and or frustrated, like the way the events work, like the fact that rolling low was just bad, like the way that some people would stumble into political card windfalls and others wouldn't. So given that there's nothing really substantial on the other side of the ledger, I'm left with primarily distaste. And it's not that the game merits that much acrimony on my part. It's just that I found that Korra was ultimately forgettable, except for all the ways in which it rubbed me the wrong way. I, on the other hand, am going to keep it around for a little longer and play it some more and enjoy it. The last things I have here, like we already talked about, is zero theme, zero interaction. I give it a pecan pie. <laughs> so that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! Thank you, listeners, for joining us for Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater, where this week we'll be talking about Avatar, The Last Airbender, Season 3. Walker, your thoughts? Well, this will wrap up our discussion on the first show of Avatar... It's odd that it was only three episodes, three seasons, when there were four elements and they were, you know, thusly named. Not much they could do with the air element, though, for reasons. <laughs> and as a wrap-up for the whole thing, I think it's just a very well-done show. It has a lot of moral decisions. I particularly like the moral decisions behind or that get the conflict of bloodbending I find very interesting and the impl- implications of that and all sorts of other stuff. The, you know, uh, the fact that once the power is taken away, the person is nothing and without the power, they are no one. You know what I mean? It's like one of these weird, you know what I mean? He takes the, the Lord's power away at the end and now he's nothing. Like that all he was was his power. You know what I mean? It's this weird well, I th- I th- dynamic I think that's there. Really a- 
that's a condemnation of the writing, I think. Because, look, make no mistake, I enjoyed the show. But I think that season three for me was ultimately a letdown because th- I was utterly uninterested in any character development that wasn't Zuko's because Zuko is the only character with a character arc. He's the only one that undergoes any form of change. You know, the Fire Nation trio, those three women, they were seriously underwritten to an almost criminal degree. Uh, Aang's conflict between his obligation to be a global messiah and his attachment to Katara, which was explored for about three hot seconds, is then just dropped. That could have been seriously interesting. Uh, Bloodbending, we're told, is nasty, but, you know, blasting someone with fire to the face and or uh, killing them with earthbending, both things we saw on the show, those are regarded as okay techniques just because. Eh, whatever, fine. Uh, but ultimately, season two was the high point for me because it was really the high point of people making serious decisions. And by people, I mostly mean Zuko. Zuko wasn't my favorite character in the show, make no mistake, but he's the only one who grows. He's the only one who develops. He's the only one who changes. Everybody else is exactly as they are when they find them, with the notable exception of Sokka, who becomes marginally less of a douchebag and gradually decides to become a swordmaster. Because in classic Avatar Last Airbender fashion, he decides to become a swordmaster and two days later, he's a swordmaster. That's the way of things. Did you ever notice that during the entirety of season three, Suki is always just looking at Sokka like he's a complete moron and she doesn't understand what she's doing with him. It was so strange. I was like, (laughs) get out. Get out, Suki, while you can. (laughs) Now's your chance to escape. It did have that, that that fantastic episode where they're at the secondary air temple and Zuko just shows up you know what I mean? Out of nowhere, you know, he's there to teach Aang firebending. Yeah. It's just that that awkward interaction. They just they just got it perfect. I I love that I, whole scene. I think the best episode of season three was the episode where uh, Aang and Zuko go meet the dragons. That part I thought was great because again, it was about people developing and changing uh, rather than just the same old. Well, you know, I'm going to say that I'm super sad about being the airbender, but I'm going to get over it a hot second later and not really explore any of these issues. Again, it's unreasonable for me to want every show to be Steven Universe, and it's unreasonable for me for every kid show to develop on those themes introduced in Season 2 that, again, reminded me of The Last Temptation of Christ. But, you know, that's where I was. So that's where I am. I enjoyed it. It was fun. But... I sometimes hear people talk about the show like you do, and I'm wondering if we're watching the same thing. Well, people get different things out of different things, which makes that is absolutely life true. wonderful. A Mustang update. There are absolutely no Mustangs at all, not even any other pony or muscle cars. Zero <sighs> out of ten, literally unwatchable. Oh, but how about how about that crazy Cyclops firebender? That guy was cool. He was fine. I mean, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Did he ever speak? Like No. He, <laughs> he doesn't need to speak. And... He's a Cyclops <laughs> nuke master. He's amazing. Uh, that's fair. I also like, yeah, but generally on that same topic, I did find it generally frustrating and very characteristic for kid shows where people would just decide that they know how to do something. Like Toph inventing metal bending. It's like, hmm, I think I should learn how to metal bend. And then she does. Like, just cause. Like, fine, okay. Which is so strange because in season two, there were brilliant training episodes. There were these episodes where people would learn about skills and develop things and substantial... Anyway, whatever. (laughs) I should stop. (laughs) Well, like I said, I think it was supposed to be four seasons and they said no three. It's like, okay, well, move along. She's a a metal bender now. Yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us, friends and neighbors, ladies and gentlemen. For Spike Presents Mass Theater, join us next time where we will discuss Korra, 
which is a development of Improvement of the Polis. No, wait, no. The Legend of Korra. She is the Avatar, and you'd better deal with it. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.